Welcome to Podcast at SDA. I'm David Bridell, and uh, this continues our season devoted to exploring plays that are in our production season at USC School of Dramatic Arts uh, 2016-2017. Before I begin, special thanks to Phil Allen and the team at the Sound and VoiceOver Studio. They're waving at me right now. Thank you, Phil, for facilitating all of this. One of our very first productions in our current season is William Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. It plays October 6th through 9th at the Bing Theatre, presented by our junior BFA class. And today's guest is Bruce Smith from USC's Dornsife College. Professor Smith is the Dean's Professor of English and the author of seven books, most recently Shakespeare Cut, Rethinking Cut Work in Distracted Times, and also Phenomenal Shakespeare and The Key of Green, Passion and Perception in Renaissance Culture. Professor Smith served as president of the Shakespeare Association of America in 1994-95, and uh, this one entertains me. The two-volume, two-million-word Cambridge Guide to the Worlds of Shakespeare, for which he serves as general editor, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. That must have been quite an undertaking, Bruce. Oh, it was epic. <laughs> <laughs> um, Professor Smith also publishes in Sound Studies and Carlos Studies. So welcome to the podcast, Bruce. It's a thrill to have you here. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And uh, you also have a courtesy appointment in our school, and you've visited on several occasions, taught in our classes, and you're also a great friend to our productions. So. Thank you. This is a lovely moment to welcome you to the studio. So we're going to talk about A Midsummer Night's Dream, and uh, I prepared a list of questions, and you don't know any of these questions, so Lord knows where this will take us, but uh, let's just chat. All the better. <laughs> so can you first tell us where A Midsummer Night's Dream sits in relation to the rest of Shakespeare's canon? When was it written? How does it fall in relation to other plays? And so on. Midsummer Night's Dream uh, is, for many people, the kind of entry point into Shakespeare because it does date from the very beginning of his career. Probably earlier plays would have been, uh, we don't know for certain, but earlier plays would have been The Two Gentlemen of Verona, uh, Titus Andronicus, The Comedy of Errors. But Midsummer Night's Dream belongs to just when Shakespeare was coming into his greatness. And we should think about it in relationship to Romeo and Juliet, for example, uh, or Richard III, Richard II. So it's full of possibilities and full of excitement, full of language that's a joy to hear, uh, and also complex psychologically, uh, perhaps in more in, 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 a, in a deeper way than those earlier plays like Comedy of Errors and uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona, those two comedies in particular, which are absolutely delightful in the theater and always work. Uh, but Midsummer Night's Dream, you, you, one wants to come back to it uh, again and again and again. And every production that I've seen has taught me something new uh, about the play. Let's talk about that idea of more psychological complexity in the characterizations. Can you give an example, perhaps, in relation to Midsummer, or, or even just talk more generally about how we know that Shakespeare was evolving in this direction? Well, just the complexities of the very beginning of the play um, with the introduction of Theseus and Hippolyta. Uh, This play was very popular in the 19th century, and it uh, inspired uh, uh, Mendelssohn's famous uh, music for production. 
<clears throat> and it's very it, it inspired a kind of romantic idea of the forest and the green world and love and fairies and all kinds of delightful things. But at the beginning of the play, the introduction of Theseus and Hippolyta, although they both speak to the occasion in a very kind of public way, because it's a public scene, they're underlying psychological tensions that get um, alluded to that a production can really explore. And that particularly has to do with the fact that uh, Theseus has won the hand of Hippolyta as a result of a military victory. And um, Hippolyta uh, was famous in Shakespeare's time and, 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 and still is uh, as the leader of an all-female society. Uh, and uh, how she feels about the marriage, she doesn't get any chance directly to say that. But there is just enough resistance in her speeches to what Theseus uh, is proposing at the beginning. I mean, he's a kind of take-charge person. You know, he's the Duke. He can say and do what he wants. And um, even he, at the end of his first couple of speeches, seems to... De there's an, there's a, there, the, the language suggests that he detects her hesitation. And there's a kind of underlying tension between them that gets played out every single time that they're together in the play. So when later in the play they go into the forest and they run into the lovers and they hear the lovers' stories about all the strange things that, that have happened overnight um, in the forest, um, Theseus says, oh, this is just typical of love and, you know, there's nothing to this. And Hippolyta says, but I think... There's more to this than reason can explain. And then very curiously, at the end of the play, when the play within the play is being performed, when the rude mechanicals are putting on Pyramus and Thisbe, um, we really expect that Hippolyta as a kind of, if we think of her as a kind of downtrodden or controlled character, we would think that she would be very sympathetic to the to the to the tradesmen and 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 craftsmen who are putting on the play, um, but instead she's very resistant to it and keeps making snide comments, um, which we would find to be politically insensitive or refusing the solidarity with these other marginalized people that you would expect her to have. So why is she that way? And one reason may be that she's still resentful about the marriage and that she is not looking forward to the consummation of the marriage with Theseus, which is going to happen after the play is over. So that's what I mean. It can be played on, 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 on the surface. It can just be absolutely delightful mm. and, and romantically engaging. But there's also a lot of opportunity there for exploration of depth of character that is 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 really quite different or in a, in a, in a new direction a new key from the characters in Shakespeare's earlier plays who are always spot on the moment and are given speeches that are great to listen to and have wonderful things to say but these kind of hidden conflicts if i can put it that way uh are not as much t closer to the surface uh as they are in a midsummer night's dream 
Understood. And, and while you're talking about that, you're also making me think of complexity in relation to the way that the play is structured. Because uh, you mentioned a play within a play, but one could perhaps argue that there are several versions of a play within a play in Midsummer Night's Dream. You know, the introduction of the world of Theseus and Hippolyta and Aegeus then morphs into this forest, which has a one could argue has a sort of theatrical uh, quality. And then we meet the mechanicals in relation to the fairies, and there's another version of theater there, and uh, and so on. It, it continues and it continues. So that kind of um, Structural layering, and if I'm not mistaken, is not so present in Comedy of Errors and others, others of these earlier plays. Well, that's true, but it, this also looks forward to uh, the place that I just love above all, like As You Like It, yeah. and Twelfth Night, where when you think about it, there's a really odd assortment of characters mm. that are brought together here. Theseus and Hippolyta, who come out of classical myth, uh, the citizens of Athens, the two the two daughters and their two suitors and their father, all of whom um, seem to be of indeterminate social status. I mean, whether they're wealthy merchants or or I don't think that they, there's necessarily any sense that they're aristocrats. So they're in a kind of dubious position. And then the mechanicals and the fairies are all kind of brought together. You know, it's like um, having a party... Uh, to which you've invited certain people. <laughs> but uh, the party is crashed by people that you don't expect. Right. And so really it could be all the more delightful <laughs> for bringing together people who ordinarily wouldn't be part of the same um, social set. Right. There's, um, you, you alluded to this already in your description of the relationship between Theseus and Hippolyta, but there's, there's clearly and naturally, I think, for the theme of the play, a great tension between the male and the female. And uh, one good example of that might be Aegeus and his relationship with Hermia. Yeah. So, um, and later, by the way, it just strikes me as we're talking that Shakespeare Shakespeare runs with this ball many times yes. in his plays. And I'm thinking of Othello where Brabantio really goes off the deep end in relation yeah. to Des Demona's decision. So um, back to Midsummer. The tension between the male and the female, the father and the daughter, or indeed the suitor and the suitee, um, how much do you feel that Shakespeare is is probing something um, to, to critique it, or, and how much to, to turn it into entertainment? Well, I do think your observation about it being something that Shakespeare comes back to again and again is really uh, true. Um, problematic father-daughter relationships are one of the things that Shakespeare is drawn to again and again and again. Um, and it's curious, uh, the absence of mothers uh, in Shakespeare's plays. I mean, Volumnia uh, in Vis-a-vis uh, -vis Coriolanus in that play is a huge exception uh, <clears throat> to that. So the question would become um, why that why that problematic relationship between a father and a daughter um, is brought up again and again and again. Um, an easy answer that people have given, too easy, I think, is that there's biographical evidence that Shakespeare himself experienced this. Uh, he had three children, twins, Hamnet and Judith, and then a daughter, Susanna. His son, Hamnet, uh, died uh, early, and um, 
that left uh, Judith and Susanna. So he had two daughters rather than a son, which in terms of inheritance and the sense of passing on your reputation and your worldly goods uh, might have been seen as preferable. But it's clear from Shakespeare's uh, will that he that and I, I do think he 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 died unexpectedly. Uh, he dying at the age that he did in his fifties. For somebody of his social station, that actually was probably ten years earlier than he would have expected to have, could could be expected to have died. But he had problems with his daughter Judith, even though she was married to the son of someone who had been very good friends of Shakespeare's parents. But um, she clear, clearly the daughter of Susanna uh, was the was the the person that he had the greatest trust in and made the executor of his will and uh, her house she married a physician that wouldn't be nowadays that would be a, a huge rise in social station but it necessarily wasn't necessarily in Shakespeare's days because doctors have to get their hands dirty and deal with people's bodies and All so right. forth so but anyway her that that, that their house Hallscroft can be visited in Stratford-upon-Avon, and it's clear that they did establish, uh, had a social presence that the daughter Judith, who, with her husband, ran a pub called The Birdcage, uh, which still, the building still exists at the corner of Bridge Street and uh, Chapel Street. Uh, it's something else now, but it's been a variety of things. But uh, in Shakespeare's day, it was a pub, and they were always getting in trouble with the local authorities for watering down the beer, and, you know, a problematic daughter and then an ideal daughter. So <laughs> that's an ice dream. Well, yeah, you're right. That's very smart to have focused on that because that, that does seem to be a, a, really big, uh, a really big aspect of the play and, and a harbinger of things that are much more complex later. Think about King Lear yes, and his daughters. Yeah, and, and uh, as you described, two daughters, one ideal and one problematic, Taming of the Shrew comes yeah. uh, roaring to the front of my brain. So there's a biographical reason why that may have been the case, but I like to think about what it was about the play that um, drew audiences to it and think about their investment in that situation. And we know that the audience at the Globe Theatre in London, huge part of that audience was made up of young men uh, who were in London as apprentices or law students, and that uh, they had to establish a way of making their way in the world financially before they could marry. And so the average age of marriage in Shakespeare's time, and this is pretty well documented from parish records, really was late 20s for men and early 20s for women, which is really a shock to how, how we think about what marriages were like in those days. So that the choice of who one marries and the relationship of that person to the existing social structure it was something really important in the lives of the the, the audience, Shakespeare's original uh, original audience. So it can be approached from that side as well. And then there's also the fact that in Roman comedy, the father figure who blocks the marriage uh, of children is a standard feature, although it's usually a father blocking the desires of his son 
not the father blocking the desires of a daughter. So they're, they're you know, they're, it's complex, yeah. the, the variety of reasons, things that converge uh, in that particular, that particular aspect of a Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes, and there's, gosh, there's so many um, threads that one could follow here. I'm tempted to just pull on one for a second. Um, it seems to me, listening to you discuss the, the social ramifications and the social importance of marriage, in my mind I'm thinking, you know, to what extent was Shakespeare consciously a social writer? Um, <clears throat> and at the very least, I, I would posit that marriage... Uh, is not only in of itself a fascinating and sort of never-ending topic for both a psychological and social discussion, but it's also emblematic of power structures that get played out on a larger scale, political power structures. And we know, of course, from Shakespeare's extraordinary canon that he, that he, he went into that in great depth as well in his history plays. So I'm, I wonder whether um, tensions that Hermia feels in relation to Aegeus or tensions that uh, lovers feel in relation to each other also in some way mirror or, or open the door to political tensions that Shakespeare witnessed or was writing about as well, especially kings and queens. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. And um, the, it's, uh, I, 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 I'm thinking of Hippolyta's reaction to the rude mechanicals putting on the play within the play. Uh, I think there are really, there has, for the last 50 years, there's really been a, a tendency for academic Shakespearean critics to want Shakespeare to be a questioner mm -hmm. uh, and to be pushing against social boundaries and the fact that he could see the human side of what it was like to be a king and to expose that kings could have really nefarious motives or that they could have conflicting motives or that they might, in the case of Richard II, not really be psychologically suited to, become, to being a king. Henry VI uh, would be another example of that. Um, we would expect, uh, we want Shakespeare to be a political liberal. Mm. And yet, <laughs> how does a, middle sum, a Midsummer Night's Dream end? Right. It ends with the Duke as an authority figure, clearing everything up, and the Duke, with his power, allowing the lovers to marry whom they wish against the wishes of Aegeus. Um... And I'm afraid that Shakespeare's comedies do end with an assertion of authority from a male power figure. Um, so that it's convenient that things happen that way. Uh, but it, 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 it's questioning the system. I mean, Theseus is made to appear not to be totally in control because of Hippolytus' pushback. And yet, in the end, it does seem necessary for there to be an authoritative uh, male voice who kind of puts the pieces of the play together, except that in A Midsummer Night's Dream, the last voice that you hear is actually Puck's. And it makes you really wonder then if behind the whole human social political structure, there aren't unseen powers that maybe have the last word after all. It's delicious to think about, and I'm, as you speak, I'm, I'm wondering whether comedy or classical comedy is inherently conservative, despite the fact that it shakes like a sort of mild earthquake. It shakes structures up and, you know, reorganizes things. Eventually, society does not come crashing down. 
um, and, and, you know, and, and need to be rebuilt from the ground up, but rather the existing order is confirmed, even if all within it might have learned something new. Well, and that fits very well with what anthropologists uh, have discovered about rites of passage uh, in cultures, traditional cultures all over the world, and that is that um, at the change of seasons and as, as it changes in life status— that everyone is invited to go through a period of trying on different roles and the world is turned topsy-turvy so that um, the midsummer, a Midsummer Nights was one such occasion and people did have license to go out into the woods and the idea was that if you spent the night in the forest, you would see a vision uh, of the person that you were destined to marry, but of course the uh, the per- other person who was there in the forest had chosen to come there <laughs> <laughs> so that they would be such a person. And um, objectors to these traditional customs, uh, people like Philip Stubbs in The Anatomy of Abuses, um, uh, this included uh, social conservatives of all sorts, but particularly the Puritans, who are the founding fathers of our country. Uh, were totally against this, and they would say that uh, of the people who went, uh, the women who went into the forest on Midsummer Night's Dream, scarcely any came back a virgin. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that this was an occasion for our social license and that things could be turned upside down. Um, Twelfth Night was performed uh, as part of the last day of the Christmas festivities at one of the ends of court, and uh, it was an occasion for the students to be the people who were in control and for the professors, for the, law, for the lawyers in this case, to kind of take a back seat. But the, what anthropologists have pointed out uh, in how these events work in cultures all over the world is that once people have tried on a different role and let off steam, then the next day they go back into their traditional social roles, perhaps better adjusted to those roles. So in our culture, uh, there are very few examples of this that still exist. But I do think Mardi Gras in New Orleans, followed by uh, Ash Wednesday, uh, is a very good uh, example of that. Um, yes, and I think of Carnival in Brazil, where exactly. you know, there's perhaps a, uh, as a nation that that country is more predisposed uh, to non-puritanical behaviors than, yeah, than, the, yeah. than the United but States. But you know the point, the thing about, I've never been to, I've been to Brazil and really loved it, but not for um, Carnival. And, uh, but it's clearly something that people all over the world want to experience Absolutely. because people from all over the world go to Rio That's for right. uh, that event. So it's it's uh, uh, people are responding to the call of their twelfth their inner twelfth night exactly their inner midsummer exactly. night street exactly. So um, Bruce, uh, amateur Shakespeare lovers, I would include myself among them, um, frequently have a generic understanding that Shakespeare's plays uh, are born of stories that he himself did not create, that he was a, a tremendous magpie who picked up narratives from all kinds of different uh, areas and then used them for his own devices to build his own nests. Mm. Um, So is this true in the case of A Midsummer Night's Dream? And if so, where does the the narrative or the the base story come from? Well, typically for Shakespeare's plays, uh, from various sources, and sometimes sources that if you really think about them belong to different areas of experience. Uh, The basic basic inspiration for A Midsummer Night's Dream uh, comes from Ovid's Metamorphoses, 
which is a, a series of stories of transformations from one form to another. So bottoms being converted into a kind of hybrid creature with the head of an ass uh, would be a perfect example of something that comes from A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, the the whole business of the fairy lore uh, uh, comes from um, from British culture, and especially the, uh, the the idea that there is a puck figure who can make the milk turn sour and can perform all kinds of mischievous uh, mischievous things is is from something quite indigenous and close to home. Um, the rude mechanicals then <clears throat> belong to uh, yet another tradition uh, in which. Um, uh, of ridicule and social satire. So to have the kind of romance of the fairies with the social satire in the presentation of the rude mechanicals mixed with something that seems to be quite a, a, a mixture of romanticism and satire in how the lovers are treated mixed with a classical history in the case of Theseus, uh, is it, it really is like a multi-layered gateau or uh, <laughs> casserole <laughs> in which all of these flavors are, um, come together and are all the richer for the juxtaposition. And can we find in any pre-existing literature um, a story of a potion that turns, you know, uh, one, lover, one lover's attention from A to B, from a Demetrius to a Lysander? Is that something that, or did Shakespeare actually invent that? I doubt that he invented it, mm -hmm. but uh, I don't have a specific source that I can, okay. uh, that I can point to. Okay. Um, I would think that that would be a kind of um, motif that one could find uh, all over all over the place. There's a <clears throat> there's actually an index um, of folk narrative motifs that gives them each a number, and many of these elements in Shakespeare, like the bed trick, for example, in other plays. Uh, turn out to be features of stories all over the world. And again, it's anthropologists who have been through all of that material and have systematized them and have given them, um, given them numbers. So I suspect that if we went to the folk motif index, uh, we would easily find uh, many stories that have to do with the love potion that suddenly changes the vision of the person who either drinks it or has it applied to her or his eyes. So on the subject of uh, potions and, and these kind of factors that we find in Midsummer, uh, unlike perhaps Twelfth Night or As You Like It, we, in this play, Shakespeare really plunges fully into the realms of the supernatural. There are certainly magical qualities in the other plays, but here we actually have spirits and fairies and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, and, and perhaps Midsummer is, uh, should I say, especially unique. I hope that's not uh, um, a tautology. Um, in, in really pursuing this whole um, theme of magic. Why do you think he does so in this play, and is there something very um, particular that 
that Midsummer is is telling us about human relationships, using magic as the catalyst for that discussion? I think that magic uh, is certainly related to the love theme mm-hmm. in uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, and it does take a kind of magic to make uh, everything come out okay in the end. But for me, the magic really resides in theater. Hmm. It resides in putting on plays. And it resides in the invitation to the audience to give their imaginative assent to what the play is presenting. So that when Theseus refuses to think that there is anything at all to the stories of magical transformations that have happened in the forest, um, I really see that as a judgment against a certain kind of rationalist thinker who is also very unlikely to appreciate what goes on in the theater. And at the end of the play, Puck having the last words and speaking the epilogue, um, refers to uh, himself but to all the other characters in the play as being shadows. And it seems to me that what theater does is to take these imaginary creations and make us believe in them. And a shadow is like a testimony to something that exists, but not always something that you can see directly. I'm going to uh, read us oh, one of uh, Theseus's speeches, and I think we're right in the wheelhouse here. <laughs> uh, and I'm fascinated by this speech. I always have been, and I think it uh, speaks directly to what you suggested. And also, uh, going right back to our first point about psychological complexity, it, it, it may tell us that Theseus himself is struggling with, this, uh, with his very viewpoint. So uh, the beginning of Act 5, uh, Hippolyta prompts Theseus after learning of the extraordinary events in the forest by saying, "'Tis strange, my Theseus, that these lovers speak of." And Theseus responds as follows, "'More strange than true, I never may believe these antique fables nor these fairy toys. Lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies, that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends.'" The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. One sees more devils than vast hell can hold, that is the madman. The lover, all is frantic, sees Helen's beauty in a brow of Egypt. The poet's eye, in a fine frenzy, rolling, doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. And as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Such tricks hath strong imagination, that if it would but apprehend some joy, it comprehends some bringer of that joy. Or in the night, imagining some fear, how easy is a bush supposed to bear. So, yes, certainly the rational in thesis is objecting uh, to everything that he's heard, but there's such fascinating kind of catalyzing sparks in that speech that I also wonder, and I frequently think this with Shakespeare, whether in exploring a a point of view, he's also revealing its other side and giving it license to be heard. Oh, I think that's true. I mean, there are a variety. That's the wonderful thing about um, 
It's the wonderful thing about Shakespeare. As a, I hate to do an invidious comparison. <laughs> please, but please but, do anyway. <laughs> but it's one of the things that really distinguishes Shakespeare from someone like Ben Jonson, for mm. example, whose plays Epicene are the Silent Woman, The Alchemist, um, Volponi. Those, those always are really fantastic in the theater. But Jonson is, he's always, there's got to be a spokesperson in the play for his point of view. And you do feel that there is a controlling point of view behind the whole thing. The thing about Shakespeare is that regardless of what your, the prejudice you bring to the theater, there's, there is somebody in the play who is going to speak to your particular imaginative point of view. And I do think that Theseus, in the speech that you just read so beautifully, um, gives voice to a kind of detached, reasoned response that, that could be an index of conflict in Theseus himself and particularly in his relationship to uh, Hippolyta, who, who's, who, who really has a riposte to this speech by saying there's more here than you than, than, than you might realize. Um, it's not only an index to his character, a conflict in his character, but it, it's a recognition that of, out of the 3,000 people that at the max could be crowded into the Globe Theater, there are going to be 3,000 different responses. And um, who knows how many people came away thinking, oh, that Theseus, you know, he was in control at the end of the play. He really saw through this whole thing. And then how many people are there who are going to take the point of view of Hippolyta and, and think, oh, that Theseus, he was so blind. He missed the magic of this play. Or people, I mean, what the play invites us to do is really to take the perspective of Puck, Yes. who is a spirit and who is who is involved in the human events but outside the human events. And uh, epilogues frequently leave us in that kind of in-between relationship to what we've just seen. We don't dismiss it, uh, but we have to be ushered back out into the, the ordinary world outside the theater doors. And... Um, you know, the word I would focus on in that speech, imagination, of course, is, is, is the big word. And what do we mean by imagination? Is imagination folly? Is it hmm. imagination something that you, that, you, you, that you just make up things? Or is imagination creativity? But the other key word there, which I think the meaning of this word has changed, so we're, we're apt to miss it, is the word strange. Because... Um, Thesis is using it uh, at the beginning of that speech to mean foreign or um, uh, somehow upsetting and worthy of being dismissed. But when you think about the tempest, the word strange is invested with an imaginative power. Things that are strange can actually engage us more completely and more fully than things that are easily, rationally explainable. So you actually made me hear that word strange here in a, in a new way. And if we're thinking about A Midsummer Night's Dream, looking forward to Shakespeare's later plays, uh, I would think about The Tempest mm. 
and think about um, think about Ariel's song, uh, "Nothing of Him That Doth Change, but into something rich and strange." Or strange has a different valence entirely. Yes. As you describe the 3,000 people in the globe watching a performance of this play, I'm also wondering whether, uh, as they perceive these varying different points of view, I have in the back of my mind some, somewhat of a cliche which suggests that a globe audience was pretty rowdy and was just as interested in the peanuts as the production and was constantly coming and going and so forth. Did Shakespeare create the beginnings of a modern audience uh, who ultimately, through the plays of authors like Ibsen and Chekhov, would sit quietly and and absorb fully these incredibly rich, dimensional aspects of human beings. Was Shakespeare one of the first to really insist that the listener grapple with this kind of depth and dimension? Well, I think uh, Shakespeare, being a man of the theater and being an actor uh, himself, knew that um, you had to capture and hold. Mm. Uh, the imagination, uh, the audience. And uh, you can see this in A Midsummer Night's Dream, like so many of Shakespeare's plays, that began with a loud, authoritative male voice uh, who takes control of the acoustic space of the theater, and then the play goes from there. Uh, and that's just, you know, it's it's part of the practical business of putting on a play. I mean, if we now we can dim the lights. Absolutely. We can have some recorded music yeah. uh, uh, that we have borrowed from film as a way of kind of ushering the audience into um, a different mode of perceiving. But Shakespeare's theater, I mean, this was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. 3,000 people uh, of, all, of all different social stations, which was one of the things that people objected to the theater, uh, complained about the most was that it brought together people of all different walks of life and brought them together in the same space, and there was something very subversive and dangerous um, about this. Um, but so, so, so Shakespeare knows the tricks of the trade enough to do that. And I think it's probably necessary uh, at the end of the play also for there to be a kind of dominant note that pulls the play together and sends the audience away. But uh, it's telling that Shakespeare, in comparison with other playwrights of the period, doesn't always begin plays with an authoritative male voice. Another device that he uses uh, that is, is just as common, like at the beginning of Othello, is to have a couple of people walk out the door talking, and then the audience, you know, in the, in, in the middle of a conversation, King Lear begins that way as well, and um, the audience then gets pulled in in another way by thinking, who are these people and what are they talking about? <laughs> so it's a matter of finding and holding the audience. And I do think that uh, uh, Shakespeare was a master at doing that and not just in the most obvious, um, in the most obvious ways. So to that degree, I, you, you could say that he's an, anticipating Ibsen and Chekhov uh, in expecting the theater to be, uh, theater audiences to be very focused, but but realistically, uh, there's plenty of evidence that audiences were not attentive until the beginning of the 20th century in that way, that audiences in the 18th century and in the 19th century uh, talked, they got up and left, they... Um, they they enjoyed the re refreshments and who knows came back in a semi 
drunken state. I think the idea of a of a focused audience is a pretty recent, based on what I know, is a pretty recent uh, phenomenon. And so I'm more tolerant than a lot of Shakespeare professors are uh, at uh, productions at Shakespeare's Globe in London, especially the ones that take place in the afternoon, because it's a very diverse. It's not 3,000 people. It's more like 1,200 people uh, because of fire laws. But, um, you know, people are checking their messages on their cell phones. I mean, it, it, all kinds of things are happening. But somehow I think that's actually closer to the experience that Shakespeare was uh, was dealing with you, 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 you know. I think he had a sense of the diversity of the audience. Plenty of testimony that in the period, uh, if people didn't like a speech, a particular speech, they would mew. For example, uh, <laughs> they would also, if they were really thrilled by a speech, they would stop the play by by uh, yelling and applauding. Something that happens in opera performances uh, today. So I, I, I like that looseness. Mm -hmm. So it's perfectly possible to think of Shakespeare as being an anticipation of Ibsen and Chekhov, but they, Ibsen and Chekhov in the theater they write for seems much calmer, tamer, mm -hmm. smaller, and more bourgeois than, um, than what Shakespeare was uh, writing for. Yes, and I've stood in that pit, and I've you know, it's a very different experience to watch a play while you're standing up um, and spend two and a half or three hours on your feet. You know, you need mm. to move around a little bit. You can't possibly stay as sort of um, uh, sedentary, obviously, and as, as uh, in one place as you can when you're sitting down. And then the sun moves in the sky and you have to kind of adapt to that yeah. and so on and so on. No, so. I, when I go, if I haven't gone as part of a conference, uh, I always choose to uh, stand because yeah. I like to move around. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Um, Maybe the closest experience is, is uh, and also they allow you to bring beverages in. Yeah, that's right. So it's more like the Grand Ole Opry yeah. than it is the Metropolitan <laughs> Opera, yeah. which is uh, <laughs> which is probably actually a uh, actually a good th a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was uh, there was a, either a Swiss or a German by the name of Adolf Appiah who was who's credited as the inventor of stage lighting and uh, around the mid to late 19th century, mm -hmm. um, and things changed radically at that point, for sure. But prior to that, melodramas were still just as, you know, popular, and I mean that in both senses of the word, and behaviors were just as raucous as, uh, as at Shakespeare's time. I think uh, philosophically, um, our idea about theater changed uh, at the end of the 19th century, too, when theater and opera and symphonic music um, were accorded the kind of devoted attention that had once been given to religion. <laughs> I mean, this is a common thing uh, in, in talking about the symphonies of Mahler, for example, mm -hmm. or talking about the operas of Richard Wagner, that they become substitutes for something that has been lost, and there is a kind of uh, reverential attitude. Um, but I was talking with uh, Richard Wistrick, who is the head of the... Um, uh, Royal Academy of Music and uh, at a conference a year ago. And I was asking him about this m matter of attention and audiences um, uh, at, at concerts paying attention. And uh, I asked him, well, how long, what is the longest that an audience in the 16th century or the 17th century would expect it to be to sit still and really listen to something? And he said the longest piece that he could think of is no more than 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. 
And there's plenty of evidence, uh, as he said, that people talked, um, that they would get up and leave in the middle of a concert. It, it was very much the idea that, that what was happening was part of a larger uh, social event. Um, and we may, we may be coming closer to that now, coming back to something that was once the case, um, rather than kind of abandoning mm-hmm. a tradition that we imagine goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks. Right. So we're broadening our conversation. That leads to my last question, Bruce, which is um, uh, what do you perceive to be the, um, the state of Shakespeare scholarship and Shakespeare production right now? Uh, it's his, the 400th anniversary of his death this, this year. And uh, it seems to me that there's just as much life and investigation and curiosity around Shakespeare as ever. But what does it feel like from your perspective and, and your studies? Well, richer than ever to me. Um, I'm very open to the kind of work that uh, Ivo Ivo van Hove has been doing, for example, in mashing together the Roman plays and mashing together the history plays and uh, crossing them with electronic media and, in the case of the Roman plays, uh, inviting people to Twitter during the production and inviting people to... Uh, there's a bar where there was a bar that you could go and, and get drinks. And uh, the Worcester Group uh, is someone else whose who's, who's work I really uh, admire. And to me, this isn't an abandonment of a, a way of doing Shakespeare traditionally because I'm not sure that there was ever a way of doing Shakespeare traditionally. I mean, beginning with the um, <clears throat> reestablishment of theaters in London after the Republic the reestablishment of theaters in the 1660s, uh, there's been a, a parallel uh, track of texts of Shakespeare, um, texts that were acted, and then texts that were designed for reading. And really, that goes back to the, to the 1670s. Um, and the Shakespeare for the theater has always been a changing a changing thing, changing uh, with respect to ideas about acting, yeah. uh, with with changing ideas about what personhood is, and 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 that you know Shakespeare, unlike other some other writers of the period, is not a period piece. Mm-hmm. I mean, Shakespeare is open to that to that kind of investigation, and when I see that happening in new radical ways, for me that's exciting. I mean, mind you, I still loved seeing. A traditional production. I saw the, uh, the most the, the the one that I'm thinking about that was traditional and thrilling to me was uh, Henry the Fourth Part One and Henry the Fourth Part Two with Anthony Sher in the role of of Falstaff, and it was in traditional dress. It was done in the kind of RSC Royal Shakespeare Company style that got established in the 1960s, uh, and it was just tremendously. Uh, Memorable, but but that's only one way of 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 doing Shakespeare. So I I I I, I revel in the fact that we now have many choices and many ways. There actually is some wonderful Shakespeare on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Done by amateurs, for yeah. example, which may be the most exciting thing of all. I was uh, directing a production of Taming of the Shrew in a theater company that I ran in New York. And uh, one day a woman called the box office and asked to speak to the director. And I said, yes. 
She said, uh, I've heard you're doing the taming of the shrew. I said, that's right. She said, is it in traditional costume? And it wasn't. We were doing a production set in the Wild West. So I said, no, no, it's set in the American West. And she just said, well, then I'm not coming. And she put the phone down. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing to see how... It's pretty rare to see a production now in traditional that's costume. True. Yeah. But, you know, traditional costume uh, really make, it makes one, it invites one to feel that you're in a museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that can also be the case with performances of, of uh, music from the 17th century, 18th uh-huh. century, 19th century, done on original instruments with uh, uh, original practices. Uh, it's interesting. It can be tremendously exciting. It can be very revealing. But at the same time, it's, it's like putting it in a ga- the, the, the art object in a glass case. Yeah. And putting a lead light on it with a label, yeah. and I resist that. Did you see Mark Rylance's Twelfth Night, the famous oh, production? Oh yes, I did. Yeah. I actually saw it here in L.A. Okay. when it came touring uh, right, right, to right. UCLA. Yeah, well, he he usually manages to bust open any constriction that has been placed upon him. So um, he's a pretty fascinating. Yeah, exponent. and even and he's a perfect example of. Um, uh, do, doing a production according to traditional practices, mm-hmm. but using the traditional pra- practices as a way, as a way of uh, making us query our assumptions about the theater yeah. and 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 what theater is and is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So, the past can sometimes be as strange, mm-hmm. in the sense that I was talking about, uh, as the present. Yeah. On that. Wonderful note, Bruce. Thank you so much for joining us. To be honest, I could carry on talking to you for hours, but uh, um, uh, duty calls. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks very much. This has been a total pleasure. Good. And uh, we'll see you in the theater, I'm sure. Yes. Good. Podcast at SDA is a production of the USC School of Dramatic Arts. Your host is the Dean of the School of Dramatic Arts, David Bridell. Podcast at SDA is recorded, edited, and mixed by the students and faculty of the BFA Sound Design Program. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Podcast at SDA.